Welcome to the evolution of parenting. I'm Yorona, an advanced certified life coach, certified speaker coach, international speaker, and more. But most importantly for me, I'm a mother. With 17 years in the fields and studies of early childhood development, psychology, and coaching, I've come to the realization that the role of parenting never stops, but it does change. In fact, it has to change. In season two, we explored some foundational themes of parenting. Uh, my apologies, in season one, we explored some foundational themes of parenting. This is season two right here, right now. And in season two, we'll be exploring various topics with special guests who can delve into these subjects from an expert perspective. From there, we'll dive into understanding the impact around the choices we make as parents regarding these particular issues and what we're enabling or disabling in our children. I hope to tie in some of the foundational themes from season one to highlight a few ways that parents can find more proactive approaches to their parenting styles. And remember, parents are creating a part of the future world, and it's time to think about the legacy we're leaving behind and the ripple effects it will have. So let's dive in with today's guest, for this episode, welcome Kyle Jetzel. I hope I said that right. Please tell our audience a little bit about yourself, Kyle. And if I incorrectly pronounced your last name, please correct it for me. You did it perfectly, Yorona. It's it's Kyle Jetzel, and it's kind of like a pretzel with a J. So pretty simple if you look at it like that, right? And I am uh, self-labeled as the driven autism dad. I'm the father of six kids, uh, and my two middle sons are on the autism spectrum, uh, one being on the more severe end of the autism spectrum. So my story in a nutshell is for years, I and, and my now deceased wife, Shelly, uh, struggled with raising our sons on the autism spectrum. Everything that we did with our first two typical boys failed miserably when my third son came along. All the All the books and all the things we had read and applied that were giving us kind of a a world of happiness and hope with our kids just absolutely didn't work with him. And, and it, I remember when we first got the diagnosis, it was, we were relieved because we believed now we were going to get the help we needed to help raise him. Uh, but I remember thinking it was like we were being asked to take a test that we didn't know about for a class we never took on a subject that there was no guide. And if we failed the test, we failed our kids. Uh, so as we put our kids through, uh, we sent them to all these specialists and experts and therapists, spent thousands upon thousands of dollars trying to get them the help they needed. And we realized when these individuals, although they did help our kids, they didn't really teach us as parents how to be the parents they needed. And so when we realized that they didn't help us uh, solve our autism-related challenges in our home, that's when I self-labeled myself as the driven autism dad. And my goal is to really be driven to lower stress and learn how to thrive as we raised our kids. And so now I teach that same framework and that recipe to other families and, and in hopes that they can become what we've become. And we call ourselves, uh, prior to my past, my wife's passing, we called, we said we had a top 1% happy marriage. And we, to this day still, have a top 1% happy family. And that's really the goal I have for other families that are raising kids on the spectrum. I love that. I love that. Thank you so much. What you're doing is 
so amazing. And honestly, it's a testament to your resiliency and your strength and the courage you found to open up and be honest with yourself, with your family, with others, and, you know, do the best you can to help others in the world. And so, you know, for today's topic, Kyle and I discussed this previously, and we were talking about social and intimate relationships. But when we talk about social and intimate relationships, we're also including family relationships, because that's one of the, the core relationships you develop, right? And how we navigate the family dynamics of having children with and without disabilities is such a huge piece of this puzzle because it starts with the family. You know, so many people are like, we know this, but we don't take it to heart. And I think you've truly delved into taking it absolutely to heart because what you said, it's so powerful. You know, they were helping your children, but they weren't helping you in your home. And it starts there, right? Home is where everything begins and ends ultimately. So some of the foundational themes I thought of in, in discussing this kind of the family relationships and the family dynamics topic um, that I'd love to try to tie in here are discernment and resiliency. And when I talk about res- discernment, I'm thinking about how do we discern what relationships are healthy for us, what relationships are not, but also how do we discern how to build those healthy relationships? You know, we can't determine if something's healthy or unhealthy if we haven't learned how to build a healthy relationship first, right? To know right. what's miss what's missing from an unhealthy relationship or what's you're not being provided with or you're not working on in an unhealthy relationship. And of course, resiliency is all about, you know, when to say this is this is not good this is not healthy this is not working and how to resiliently move away from that and how to balance that out in your life so um <clears throat> what i was wondering about is if you could take us back to the time when before your middle son was born when you had your other two because clearly you established something with your wife and you made a plan and you really, it sounds like for the most part, you stuck with it. And I know Kyle will will tell this to you guys. I say this all the time. I make mistakes. I may be what people consider a parenting expert, but I make mistakes as a parent. You can't not make mistakes as a human being. It's inevitable. But what do you do with those mistakes? So I, I'd love to hear about your, your take on that, especially you know prior to your middle son being born. Yeah, so my wife and I, we come from different worlds. Uh, I come from a, I grew up in the middle of a, in a, what a lot of people would call the hood in, in inner city Dallas. And so I, I grew up with m- an overwhelming amount of masculinity and, and rough and tough and rumble, right? And so I kind of came into the relationship and, and my wife on the other side was very feminine, very, I mean, all the things that you would associate with that part of it. And I think that's what attracted to me, me to her so much is I knew that I needed more balance in my life. And she was so uh, loving. She was just, she had a way about her that she just exuded feminine love. And so when we got married, you know, I, I came into it realizing that I knew that my upbringing would not be the best way to raise kids. And so she and I, before we even have had kids, talked about and thoughtfully considered how we would work together 
and, and, you know, preliminarily read books. And I realized that I didn't grow up in a perfect world and she didn't grow up in a perfect world. And there were mistakes our parents made. And if we just parented by default, we would probably have problems, Mm -hmm. right? And so as my first two sons were born, they were what we called feral. They were feral little boys, right? Not because they were bad or because they were anything other than just little boys, right? That's what little boys are in a lot of cases, especially my sons. And so I probably didn't help. Mine too, mine too. (laughs) I probably didn't help because I had a couple of rules, but as long as as we're going to do it, if it's legal, moral, ethical, and nobody gets hurt too bad, we'll do it, right? And so I kind of engaged in the craziness with my sons. So my as, as my wife came into it, she was faced, when I would go off to work, she was faced with these feral little boys. And she had it to understand, and she was prepared to understand that they're going to be crazy, they're going to be wild. She should let them explore that side of themselves within parameters. And so as we, as we, as they started to grow, we really started to figure a few things out and we had what we, we kind of were growing this little, you know, white picket fence world, right? Where, where I loved her, she loved me and our two little boys were wild animals that we loved and we knew they would turn into good men, right? And and that was our plan. And it, it was interesting because when my third son was born, everything we had tried and you know we had we had disciplinary ways to manage them that were that were kind and you know in a spirit of love. We always tried to discipline in a spirit of love, even when they were doing the crazy stuff. Uh, but when my third son came along, nothing worked. I mean, none of the same things that we had tried with our first two sons worked at all. And so we, you know, my wife and I looked at each other at one point and thought, have we just become horrible parents overnight? Because nothing works. Well, we ended up putting him in a when he was about four, we ended up putting him in a preschool to see if maybe that would be helpful for him. And and not long after, the one of the preschool individuals came to us and said, have you considered having him diagnosed on the autism spectrum? And we were a little bit shocked by this because this was 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And back then, the only thing anybody knew about autism was maybe a little boy sitting in a wheelchair stemming, right? right. That right. That was what autism was back then. Right. And so we said, no, he's not in a wheelchair. He's not flapping his hands all the time. And they said, no, it's a, they taught us it was a spectrum. So when we had him diagnosed and and we finally got that diagnosis, I remember looking at her and she looked at me and we thought, okay, we were relieved yeah. because now we thought maybe we can get our happy, the stress that was being caused in our home because of his outrageous behaviors. He had no line he wouldn't cross. If he got upset, yeah. he would pick up a brick and throw it through a glass window or he would smash his head into the wall or he would self-harm. He was doing, you know, all these things that the, all the really horrible, scary parts of autism, that was him. Right. And so we thought, okay, now we can get him in these therapies and specialists and experts and they can help us solve it. And, and like I said previously, it didn't take long for us to realize that they were doing their jobs Right. But when he came back home, he was still that same little boy that we needed to learn how to manage the outburst and the chaos and the stress. And it was, and I'll never forget, it was probably one, and we weren't doing a good job at it, right? I mean, when you, when a, when a little five-year-old loses a Lego piece and starts screaming uncontrollably and throwing things and hitting his brothers and 
trying to grab whatever he can to smash things, it starts to create this chaos and stress in your home that can be overwhelming, right? Absolutely. I remember one Saturday morning, it kind of came to a head at at 6.30 in the morning. My wife and I were awakened by a blood-curdling scream. And he, he wasn't verbal at this time, so he didn't know what it was. He couldn't tell us what the problem was. He was just screaming and smashing things. And typically, you know, a meltdown could last anywhere from five minutes to maybe 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one lasted four hours. Oh. And I remember every time we would start to calm him down, he would ramp right back up. And, and it just was creating his two older brothers, typical boys, had locked themselves in their rooms because they knew to just stay out of the way. Uh-huh. And my wife and I were in turmoil. It felt like a, it felt like a, there was a, a flood hitting our house at the same time as an earthquake while there was a tornado spinning around. It was just chaotic, right? And finally, after we got him calmed down after four hours, I think the overwhelming amount of stress kind of got to my wife and I. We turned on each other. And this right. commonly happens, right? right? You want somebody to blame. When things are going horribly wrong, you want somebody to blame. And you don't really want to blame your own kid. And you don't want to blame yourself. So it really becomes common to turn on the person you should love the most, right? Oh, and so I remember, yeah. you know, I'm 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 aggressive by nature. She's passive by nature, but this time she was fighting back. Mm. And she said, if you would, you know, would have done this, maybe he would have calmed down. And I said, Well, if you weren't, if you would help me with discipline, maybe we could have and, and we, we just started arguing. And I remember at one point it wasn't stopping. Mm. And I realized if I don't stop this argument, it's who knows where it's going to go. So I walked out on my front porch with my keys in my pocket with a thought in my mind, I'm going to leave and never come back. This is not the life I signed up for. This is not the way I planned my life. I can't take it anymore. I, I've got to start new. And as I was standing on the porch there, I remember a lesson my father had taught me when I was about 12 years old. And I had been playing in a baseball game and the game was almost over. There was two outs and we just needed one out to win the game. And I was, I was playing defense and the ball was hit to me and I made an error and they, they, they got another hit and another hit and they won and we lost because of me, my fault. Mm. Right. And, and when you're, when you're 12 years old and, and it's your fault, your team loses, that's the world that right. It was the end of the world to me. And I went to my dad with tears in my eyes and I said, I wish the ball hadn't been hit to me because then we could have won. And my dad got down on his knees on my level. And he said to me, you know what, Kyle, that's not the way we do things. If something's important to you, don't you ever run away. You better give it the biggest fight you can give. Do not ever run away from challenges. He said, you face them like a man. You work and work and become the man you need to be, the athlete you need to be, the person you need to be to face that challenge. And so you know, I, in that moment, I thought, but I've done everything. I've tried the experts. I'm, what else can I do? And, and so I, in that moment, I remember I walked over, we had a big pecan tree in our front yard. Uh, and this is in Dallas, in the Dallas suburbs. And I kneeled under that pecan tree and just prayed. Because that was the other thing my dad had taught me. Mm. It's when you need real help, pray, just pray. And it'll, it'll comfort you and it'll, it'll give you strength. Right. Yeah. And I remember as I prayed, and, and I don't know what I said or how I said it, but what I do remember more than anything was this feeling that I got that your kids are not the problem. Your wife is not the problem. 
The world is not the problem. The problem is you. Fix you. Work on you. Yeah. And and that initially I wasn't happy about that, right? We never are when we realize we're the problem. But I also knew that I can't change anybody else. I couldn't change my son or my wife or my world, but I could change the way I face these challenges and the way what I learned and what I applied. And so it gave me courage. And I, I remember going back inside and I don't know if my, I think my wife saw me praying because I was out there for a little while and, and we had a big plate glass, a big glass window in the front. And I came in and I said, you know what? I'm not leaving. I'm going to figure this out and I'm going to make this work. And she said to me in that moment, good luck. Mm. She was still mad, right? She was still mad, yeah. And I well, realized that it was up to me. I was going to have to earn her faith back. I was going to have to earn it all back. But I was, but I, I was committed, and I, that's the moment I said, "I'm, I'm driven now." Yeah. And, yeah. and that you know that that speaks to the resilience that you were talking about. You know, it's easy for us to, to ignore or step away from these challenges, but when we do, yeah, things don't get better by chance. It's right. Very true. I mean, and yeah. if you think they do leave your house for a year and come back and see what you come back to. Right. Things just, things degrade naturally. They do. And if you, and if you step back and try to parent by default, oh, which yeah. is do nothing, things will degrade very quickly. Very and, quickly. And so uh, resilience is a big part of it. The other part of it, I think for me was I had read a lot of books. I had done a lot of stuff, but what I hadn't done is taken what I had read and actually applied it with consistency, very clear consistency as I worked with my kids. Yeah. So, you know, you, you've brought up so many amazing things and so many threads that I can, I can jump onto. And I'd like to hit on what you said last and kind of work our way backwards. You know, what's interesting about resiliency is people need to understand that resiliency comes from hardship. You know, but you have a choice about building that resiliency. You you can choose to lean into the hardship and use it as an excuse, or you can become more resilient by saying the hardship isn't what's going to break me. My choice to give into it is what's going to break me. And that's what informs resiliency. And I I think that um you know, what you chose to do in that moment in looking inward and saying, this is about me, how do I fix me, was the opportunity to create a ripple effect upon your family that you didn't even see happening in that moment. And and when we read books, when we take it upon ourselves to try to gain knowledge, it's a wonderful thing. But if we don't put that knowledge into practice, it won't do us any good, right? So first is gaining the knowledge. That's important. But then learning how to turn that knowledge into an active strategy that you use repetitively for consistency's sake is what makes the actual change and that creates the ripple effect. So, you know, and I want to, I want to acknowledge too that you, you know, you're getting, um, I can hear your emotion. I can see your emotion. Um, people will hear it in your voice. And I I think that what a lot of people feel is resiliency is not becoming emotional to these things, but that's not true. 
Your emotion actually helps you maintain your resiliency because you're allowing it to be a part of the process, right? And when we look at that, when we say, oh, no, no, I'm just going to, I'm going to become resilient by cutting off how I feel about this thing. No, 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 no. You need to absorb that feeling and continue forward with that feeling because that feeling will renew your determination at every turn. I, I agree. I think emotion is fuel. Yeah. Right now, now fuel can uh, create an explosion and blow you apart, or fuel can create uh, propulsion, yeah, and and drive you forward. Right, and and I think too often, you know, in those moments of distress, and and I and I will caution people in those moments of distress, in those heightened moments, mm-hmm. that's not when you should make a decision. Right? No. Unless it's a decision, Thank you for saying that. <laughs> unless it's a decision to work hard, right, and take some time to strategize or to create, you know, write the script for how you want this to go. Uh, too many people, I've seen this. They they get in these. I've got a good friend of mine who his son uh, overdosed on drugs, mm-hmm. and while his son was in the hospital, he was standing over his son saying. And he was in that moment, that emotional, right, where the emotion was overwhelming. And he said, I'll never, I never want to see my kids here again. I'll do anything to keep them from becoming that, from being here again. Mm. And it was a damaging, it was emotion, it was a decision made in that, in that emotion that created a damaging back end effect for the rest of his kids because Mm. he wouldn't let them, he would buy them out of trouble. He would save them at every turn. He wouldn't let them. And right. it caused all his kids to be so dependent on him that he, they, they, they're adults and they can't do things on their own. Right. Let's, because. Yeah. Saved. I would love to dive into that because that's yeah. super important here. Um, right. You know, what you're saying is that it's interesting because the decision he made in that moment made him choose poor behavior choices. Now, here's the thing. You could say, I never want to see my children here again. So I'm going to try to find the healthiest mechanisms to ensure that they live life in a healthier manner. But what he actually did was he did the opposite. He said, I'm never going to see them here again. So I'm going to take care of it all. And he chose to build maladaptive, unhealthy behaviors. And and I think that's easy to do because that's default parenting, right? Yes, it is. Saving our kids is default parenting. It's it's not it's not thoughtful, right? It's not stepping away in a moment where the emotion has come down and saying, if my goal is to create these powerful adults who can run their own world and spread happiness and joy and be courageous as they face these challenges, what are my strategies? What are my tactics? What, what am I going to do? But that that's not when you're right in that middle of that emotion, right? You've right. got to you've got to say in the emotion, you've got to say, I need to make a change. And then you step away. Yep. And you and and it can be very quickly, yep. but sometimes it takes a little bit of time to step away and sit down and write some things and and really, you know, in our family we have a strategy worksheet. And you and I talked about this a little I bit. I love right? I love this. Everybody needs to pay attention right now. This is one of the most amazing things that I've ever heard. And I, I just love it, Kyle. So please explain it. 
And so we, we called, and, and this is something I created, you know, as I, as I, when I became driven, I thought, you know what, my behaviors are not always appropriate. I need to do better. When things go wrong, I don't need to join the chaos. I need to stand up and be a pillar of strength and kindness and love. That became my goal, right? And so I said, but I can't do that sometimes. <laughs> when things start to go wrong, I fall, right? I can't. We all do. So I thought, I need, I need to create a formula for, and, and so I started researching, how do people solve problems, right? And it's pretty consistent, right? You identify the problem, right? You just determine what you want your long-term outcome to be. And you create tactics that you can follow, right? And so I created a worksheet I called the cost worksheet in C-O-S-T. And it made it simple for me. The C is what is the challenge? And I would write out the challenge in detail. And I would say, what, what's the pain it's causing me? What is it causing my family? If I don't do something about it, what is the long-term effects going to be, right? And I would really build that out. So I really created the emotion that made me act. Because you need to know your why. Otherwise, you'll fall back into default parenting. It's easy. Yeah. Uh, the in 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 the cost strategy, the O is objective. What is my long term objective? What do I want for my kids and for me? Most of the time, it's for me because I know what I want for my kids, but I can't force them to do anything. Right. What is my objective for me? I want to feel like a good father and a good parent and give them the skills and the training and what they need. So I'm going to lay out my objective long-term. Now, the S for me was very important because when things go haywire, and the S is for strategy, I gave the strategy a name. And a lot of times it was a crazy name, right? Like uh, winning every meltdown or good versus evil or um, uh, the habit of happiness. Or I have all these strategy names that are funny and silly because they're easy for me to remember, mm -hmm. right? And then the T in cost is tactics. Right. What am I going to do every time yeah. that this challenge occurs? And so for me, it, it became really cool because when a challenge would occur and I would get the triggers for me were frustration or anger or discouragement or depression, that meant I was facing a challenge. And so I would pull out my worksheet and I would start that process and I would create these tactics that I would follow every time. Now, the number one tactic I wrote on every strategy worksheet was to put myself in a spirit of love first. When things went wrong, when I faced a challenge, I thought to myself, how can I do this in a spirit of love? Mm -hmm. And know. then yeah. once I put myself in a spirit of love, then I could follow tactics that express love. And you can, you can, you can express discipline in a spirit of love. And when you do, kids respond to discipline in a spirit of love. They don't respond to discipline just for the discipline's sake. Yeah. Right? Yes. The kids respond to discipline if you love them. Right. If you just say, don't do that because I said so, they say, screw you, dad. Right. right? Exactly. Whatever. I'm a man. Because you know? that's a power imbalance. So, uh, you know, I want to hit on this too, because this is, again, we're, we're really hitting in on the family dynamics and the relationship. And we're hitting on so many core components of this. But I want to hone in on what you said about discipline. Um, I have a theory called natural consequential discipline, which is essentially that it's structured so that the natural consequences of the action you take need to be the follow-up, the the dis need to be a part of the discipline, right? Discipline shouldn't be random punishment for punishment's sake or random reward for reward's sake, because the rewards and the punishments only get bigger 
as time goes on until your kid says, yeah, you don't have any power over me anymore until that moment that they realize that. So it's about, so in reward and punishment systems of discipline are just a power imbalance. That's all they really are. So natural consequential discipline is that it's about the consequences of your actions. So if my child throws his toy and smashes a wall with his toy and he he's not playing with it appropriately, then that toy gets taken away. And well, you don't know how to, you're not playing with this toy appropriately. So when you're calmer, we're going to redo about how to play with this toy appropriately. But for now, you're going to be, re, you're going to lose that toy. Not that's it. You've thrown that toy. Now you don't get any TV time. Now you don't get any tablet time, et cetera, et cetera. No, because that's not directly addressing the issue at hand. That's not a direct consequence of the, the matter at hand. You know, if someone hits you, what are you going to do? You're going to disengage with them. You're not going to, you're not going to be there for them to continue hitting you. So and now, and this is, we're talking about neurotypically. Sure. Um, child, you know, neurotypically developing children. Uh, there is certainly a lot of difference when we deal with, uh, you know, non-neurotypical children because it becomes a different matter because we have to understand where their brain development is heading and what's going yeah. on there. I would like to to suggest to you this though. Way too many parents that have kids that are on the spectrum default to that's the spectrum I can't discipline. They don't want to discipline autism. Right. So they don't discipline. And the problem is, and I tell people this all the time, you can discipline. If you discipline in a spirit of love, if a child with autism has a meltdown and they do things they shouldn't do in a meltdown, yeah. They still need to know that's not appropriate. Yes. Okay? Yeah. Thank you. And so, but they don't want to discipline. And I say, but it's okay to discipline if you do it in a spirit of love. If you say, listen, I love you. And let me tell you what happens if you do this out in the real world. Yes. They don't love you. They will throw your butt in jail. Yes. And yes. you'll rot in jail with guys that want to hurt you. Yeah. I don't want that for you. Yeah. So I'm going to. Even if you do have a meltdown, even if it all it all is autism, you cannot hit people. Right. And so we've got to we've got to we've got to discipline behavior that is inappropriate, whether it's autism or not. Now that's true. Absolutely. If you do it in, in a if you do it in a spirit of love, your kids feel that and they go, Oh, right. The other thing that happens, and I saw this with my son, is my son watched me very carefully. And when he was very little, you know, uh, he would get completely out of control and people were telling me, restrain him. Mm. Right. And I thought to myself, if I restrain him, he's going to see me restrain him and he's going to grow up thinking, oh, good. When I become an adult and I don't like something somebody else is doing, I'll restrain them. Yeah. Right. That is the connection he may make. Yes. Because he's very literal. Yes. Right. And so I thought, you know what? That's not really a lesson I want him. This is this is is really thinking through what we're teaching our kids by our behavior and our discipline. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and, and if somebody if somebody stares at us when we're in public and he does something awkward, if they stare at us and mm -hmm. I scream at them because I say, don't you stare at us? He's on the autism spectrum that he sees me scream at them and he says, oh, oh when I, I grow up. Yeah. If I don't like somebody looking at me, I can scream at them because dad does it. You see, 
So yes. I, I think we we need to be cautious in how we manage ourselves in the world Absolutely. because they're watching us very closely, right? Oh, and all of our, our kids, children are. They are. Whether they're right? neurotypical or not, it, it doesn't matter. They're all watching us. And so I, I 100% agree with you. I'm uh, what I was saying there was that we absolutely we have to show them the right way to behave. And even if they're on the spectrum, even if they have ADHD, it doesn't matter. It, it matters. It matters in the coping mechanisms, the strategies or tactics, as you like to call them, that we use to handle that circumstance with them. That's what's going to be different. But at the heart of it all, we're still teaching the same thing. We're still teaching that it's not okay to hurt somebody when you're angry. It's not okay to throw things inappropriately. It's not okay to undress in public. It's not okay. And I've seen those ones before, um, you know, in the field that I worked in, uh, you know, and, and let me tell you something because of the field that I worked in and we had a lot of homes for residential homes for people with disabilities. And when you have an adult who's, throwing a tantrum and you're trying to do restraint, restraining on them. It's a very different circumstance yes. than a child. So remember that child is growing. So what you think is you're doing for them when they're little, and this applies neurotypically or not, this applies both ways. And what I was saying before, why reward and punishment doesn't work because if your child is acting inappropriately and you physically do something to them, Guess what you're teaching them, as you said. And then when guess what? When they get to be bigger than you, <laughs> and do then yep. it doesn't work anymore, right? Right. Um, so teaching that physical punishment is the appropriate response, you know, um, corporal punishment is the appropriate response, just teaches them that they can do the same to others. So, you know, we can't we have to to walk the walk we talk. Yeah. Right. And when- and, that's that's vital, especially you know one the one thing that I see all the time, and this is and you you probably see this too is a lot of parents will say, well, I have the best intentions, but things get escalated or I'm exhausted or I lose my patience or well, that's it's interesting because and and you know what I teach parents that have kids on the spectrum is I, they say, well, I lose my patience and I say, well, would you lose your patience if you were standing in front of somebody that really mattered to you? You probably wouldn't right I, I mean there's you you have it you're 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 justifying and that's okay but what it does mean is get out your cost worksheet and say the challenge is i lose my patience when i'm tired okay now we know the challenge right what do we want the objective to be long term i don't ever i want to put myself in a spirit of love when i lose my patience i want to be in a heightened spirit of love and what is the strategy i'm when i feel myself tired or exhausted or you know, worn down by my kids, yeah. right? That's one of the things. Well, they just wear me down. You know, that is exactly right. That is what they do. And guess what? You can create a strategy for that. My wife was, my wife had this theory. She called it the kids are velociraptors theory, right? And she said, if you've ever seen Jurassic Park, mm-hmm. the very first one, they they have these velociraptors that are very smart and they have them in this cage that has electrified fences around it. And early on, they say these, the velociraptors are systematically testing the fences in all the different areas looking for weaknesses. And if they find a weakness, they're going to exploit it, right? Yeah. Well, what happens in the movie is they have to turn off the electricity for a, a minute. And the velociraptors escape and they take over the island. 
right? Yeah. And so my wife says, kids are velociraptors in that they're always going to test the fences yeah. and they're going to find areas where it's weak and they're going to exploit it. Now, it's not because they're bad. Right. No, it's, it's because not. they're kids it's and they're because. trying to figure out how the world works and, and they're, they're going to figure it out their, in their own. They're testing home. boundaries. They're testing like, boundaries. I think one of the things that, that drives me crazy is, is um, parents need to understand that boundaries are security mechanisms for our children. Yeah. And creating them they... actually allows them to behave more freely in the bound within the boundaries, within the confines right. of the boundaries. But if you don't have any boundaries, that's it. They're just they're just going to go everywhere. And if you have two restrictive boundaries, then they're going to fight against it at every turn. So you have to create appropriate boundaries for them. And those boundaries go through a variety of different placements. You know, we've got our personal boundaries, our interpersonal boundaries, our societal boundaries, and then our life boundaries, right? And we're teaching our kids. And from a very early age, they know about life boundaries, right? They can't jump off the roof of the house or they're going to get killed. They can't jump, can't run across the street. You know, so these are the things we teach them, but we forget how to create those other boundaries and, and the, maintain and, them consistently. And our kids subconsciously are experts at finding and knowing where those weaknesses are. At the end of the day, you're tired and they've seen you turn into a child just like yeah. them, right? Maybe they're eight years old and they think, okay, at, at 10 o'clock, if I argue with mom, she's really tired and she turns into eight-year-old and I can argue for the next hour, right? And we teach them And parents say, I lost my patience. I'm so tired. That's right. And that your child knows that. That's why every night at 10 o'clock, you get into an argument with your eight-year-old. You're arguing with an eight-year-old, which means you're an eight-year-old, right? Right. You shouldn't be arguing with your kids. And so it's really important for us to realize we, our kids learn by what we teach them. Mm -hmm. They, They do what works. And when they find something that works, they do it. Again, they're not bad. They're just kids. I want to point to two things you said too. <clears throat> um, uh, well, I want to point to one thing you said when you said that your wife said that she about losing patience, right? Or when or, or those parents, oh, I've lost my patience. Yes, you were the one who lost your patience. Therefore, you are responsible for figuring out how you can recover that patience. It's not on your child to create patience for you. This is a responsibility of us, ourselves, to figure out, well, if I'm losing my patience and I can't find it anywhere, what do I need to do to remove myself from the circumstances so I can regain my patience, right? I love that because most parents, what they do is they say, how can I get my kid to stop doing this at 10 o'clock? Right. How can I get them to stop? When they should be saying, how can I keep, stay calm? cool and collected and apply the tactics. Now, you know, I have a lot of people tell me they watch me interact with my son who's more severe and they say, I'm amazed at your patience. And I said, I'm really not that patient. And they say, what are you talking about? I said, every time this happens, I have a series, a step of tactics, a series of tactics I use. And the first one is I put myself in a spirit of love. What you see is me saying, I feel it. I know it's coming. I'm going to, I'm going to stand up tall. I'm going to get energized physically emotionally, I'm going to put myself in the right place in the spirit of love. And then I'm going to apply my tactics in a spirit of love every time. And what happens to our kids is when we change our patterns, they change their patterns and they start to adjust to how we are managing them and managing ourselves really 
Yes. And they start to say, okay, well, you know what? That didn't work. Now, the other thing that I will caution parents on is when you make adjustments, they are going to ramp up. Oh, They're yeah. going to try new things, right? They certainly my, will. My son, my son went from screaming at me to trying to hit me, to telling me he was going to kill himself, to telling me he was going to kill me, to telling me he was going to run away. And guess what? None of it worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and eventually, eventually he said to himself, I remember he's not even, he's very limited. Right. Mentally. Uh, he's probably five years old mentally, although he's 24 years old physically. Right. He went through all these cycles and he kept ramping up. But instead of caving at I'll kill you or caving at I'll kill me or I, I said, you know what, please don't. I don't want you to do that. I love you. Right. Yeah. I stayed in a spirit of love and I said, please don't run away. But if you need to, I can't stop you. Yeah. But I want you here with me because I love you. Right. Okay. He go. He went through all these cycles. And when he realized that didn't get me what I wanted, that didn't get me what I want. You know what? Right. Right. Easier for me to be kind and nice and do the right things, because then I get what I want. Exactly. <laughs> yes. so kids, kids do what works. What yes. the problem is, we teach them what works by our failures yeah. a lot of in a lot of cases. Yes. And I want to point to something really important because I've heard this so many times. My child is so manipulative. And it drives me crazy again because it's a they're they're testing boundaries that is very different than being purposefully manipulative. Right. Absolutely. And they learn manipulation. Yes, they can learn manipulation, but they're not doing it from a malicious intention. They, if they understand, okay, if I push my parent at 10 o'clock and, and, and that's whenever, that's always when mom loses their patient or her patients, then I, then I know that I can get exactly what I want at 10 o'clock because she's always going to, right. It, but it's not purposefully malicious. Right. And that, that's a key component, I think, because their kids are not, they're trying to figure out the world. Yeah, And the best place for them to figure it out is in their own homes, right? Yeah. And kids are very good. You know, my son used to say to his mom, I hate you. And she would fall apart. And he made that trigger, right? Ah, now, not yeah. because he's bad. He's just a kid trying to figure out how the world works, right? Another kid, I, I, I it, this is an interesting story because I, I used to work in an office where there was a young, uh, a younger kid mm-hmm. who was very, he was very manipulative. And I know he had learned it in his own home by the way he had done things. And I remember one day he came in, he came in grinning. It was around Christmas time. I said, what are you grinning at? He said, I was thinking about when I was 15 mm. and my parents wouldn't let me go to a friend's house on Christmas. I said, well, tell me the story. Cause I'm curious mm. how this kid's mind, how he had got to where he is. He said, well, it was Christmas morning. We'd open our gifts. And I said, Hey mom, can I go see my friend? And she said, no, it's Christmas. Would you just stay here with us and hang out with us? And he said, I didn't really want to stay out, hang out with her. So I said, F you. Right. And his mom went into. Right. 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 And and dad started in protection mode. Right. And right. it created this, this, all this terrible drama. And it was horrible and, and fierce and, you know, screaming and yelling and crying and physical altercations. And then he said they kicked him out of the house. Right. And then he said he walked out of the house and he smiled and he said, now I get to go to my friend's house. He put his his family through all that, knowing know that, that he was gonna get if that, he just yeah. said "f you," yeah, and, and he left his family in turmoil. But he got to go to his friend's house, right? Because guess what? It worked. 
And he was grinning about it as an adult. Now, he's had a lot of problems because that is right now. And and if you think about that, he knew that he knew the tipping points. Right. He applied those and and he, you know, he knew what worked. And by the way, yeah. This is a really good example of how we respond in that moment we as our as parents respond in in those moments we're not trying to correcting a a a behavior needs to be corrected in moments of calm when you can apply a, a positive reinforcement opportunity but in moments of heightened when somebody becomes heightenedly emotional that is the time to de-escalate the emotion by processing, helping them process the emotion. So I have a similar example in which <clears throat> the reason why the dad jumped in was because he was like, you're not going to behave like that towards mom, right? My husband and I went through a similar situation. My, my son was about, I don't know, three and a half. So he was young. <laughs> yeah. And <clears throat> he said to me one day, we were talking about something and he got really upset because I told him now is not the time for doing that. We're going to be going to do this other thing. And he's like, oh, I hate you so much. I just want to punch you. Mm-hmm. And I see my husband about to step in and I'm like, yeah. whoa, whoa, whoa. And I, I'm like, don't, you know, I, I gave him like a, a quick signal, like, don't do that. And I said, oh, wow, you sound really angry. Can you tell me what else, what's going on? What's making you so mad? Well, I really want to do this and you're making me mad and frustrated. Okay, what else are you feeling? Well, it's not fair. Okay, what else are you feeling? Well, it hurts me. I don't feel sad about it. And by the time we were done, he was sitting next to me crying. Yeah. And then I said, so what can we do about this crying? What, how, you know, you look really sad. What, what can you do to make yourself feel a little bit happier? Well, you know, I think I want to go play with that. Okay, let's go do that. And suddenly he's happy. Yeah, and my and- husband just gives me this look like, what did just, ha-, you know? And it's because we processed his feelings. Because here's the thing, people. When your kids are yelling at you and using poor language or using, saying that they're going to do something, the question becomes, are they doing that thing or are they expressing how they're feeling? And they don't have the words to express how they're feeling in that moment. So they say an action that they're going to do to express that feeling. So the difference becomes between is between thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. If they're telling you, I want to punch you and they're not actually punching you, what they're telling you is I'm angry. So listen to what's behind it and let's investigate how they're feeling to dismantle that feeling, to express it, to process that emotion so they can learn the proper ways to then process it later. And then when everybody's calm, it's great to have repetitive conversations about, you know, what do you do when you're feeling angry? What can you do when you're feeling angry? How can you tell somebody you're feeling angry about that thing? Because those are the moments when people are calm to learn how to cope, to learn coping mechanisms so that when they get into the heightened states of emotional distress, they pull those coping mechanisms and strategies in. Sure. And I, and I want to suggest too, because I'm a man. I want to suggest to wives out there what my wife was became an expert at. Realize what your husband is doing. Okay. He's not trying to, he's not trying to 
teach you how to discipline your kid by coming in and trying to rescue. He is a knight in shining armor. He is a dragon slayer. He is coming to your, now he comes and does it wrong a whole lot of the time. (laughs) He comes in and he grabs that kid. He says, you will never talk to your mom. And, And you have to understand he doesn't know any better, right? You gotta, you gotta pull him aside and say, listen, I love that you're wanting to save me. I love that you're my knight, right? Or whatever it is you decide he is for you. But you you almost have to say, listen, you really want to make me happy? Let me tell you how you handle this, right? Give him that encouragement that, and you might say, well, he should figure it out himself. And I'd say, good luck with that, okay? Yeah. It, 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 we are not designed like that. We're, we're, we're right? When, when, when we see our wives in peril, right. we are slaying dragons and the sword comes out. Yeah. Right. And very few of us get to a point where we realize how to slay dragons properly for you in that moment. Right. And that and like you said, it's it's common for dad to come flying in and even push you aside. when You're trying to do what's right. 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 So you 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 need to be thoughtful with him, too, and say, what's the challenge with my (laughs) husband? Yes. He does this. How do I help him? I would like to put put a cap on this because we could probably be talking forever, but I do want to get to the end here. And I would like to put a cap on this by saying it's the fear driving factor. Sure. If someone loves you and they're afraid for you, they're going to respond in a manner in which they think is going to be protection mode, right? right. We do sure. this with our children too. When we see our children in stress, in distress, in pain, struggling, our fear drives us to behave oftentimes in an inappropriate manner to try to dismantle or protect them from that thing that's hurting them or causing them distress. And when it's not a physical thing, when it's not something physically distressing or harming them, but rather an emotion, like they're hurt, they're upset about something, our desire to protect them from that can unfortunately have an undesirable effect of try, of pulling away the emotion from them and just and not allowing them to process that emotion. So on that note, I want to point that to parents that the best thing you can do is get control and use maybe Kyle's mechanism of the cost mechanism, you know, the cost uh, uh, strategy to to let you retain control over your fear, your pain, your struggles, and your pre- desire to protect rather than learning from it and allowing our children to process and helping them in processing how they're feeling, what their thoughts are. And that will allow them in turn to create more healthy behaviors when it comes to these things. So Kyle, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Yaron. It's been such a pleasure having you here. And on that note, happy parenting people. And may the evolution of your parenting skills be ever in your favor.